filibuster is supported through patreon by listeners like you check us out at patreon.com slash filibuster we also get support from the ehrlich law office discrimination wage and litigation solutions for the district of columbia and northern virginia they handle workplace discrimination non-competition and non-solicitation litigation civil rights and a whole lot more for a free consultation go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster So as the the sad music um, winds down, I I do want to start on a completely different note. A friend of mine sent me uh, a news story today um, about that's uplifting. That's actually good in the world. Um, There's this startup from California that is has created a way to use drones to deliver medicine to remote hospitals or not medicine, blood uh, for blood transfusions in to remote hospitals in Rwanda and Tanzania. And those countries governments are, are, are working with them and, and basically hospitals that were otherwise unreachable uh, in any reasonable amount of time because of mountains or washed out roads can now get blood for transfusions inside of half an hour because of where these, you know, where, where these, uh, where this company is located. It's called Zipline, uh, the name of the company, and it, <laughs> it's saving lives with drones and WhatsApp, essentially, uh, because the hospitals use that to order, you know, the, the units of blood and then they put them on a drone and airdrop them so they don't need a runway or anything. Um, there it's it's cool and it's uplifting and to me anyway to see lives being saved in sub-saharan africa by this essentially tech startup so um yay good in the world i needed that cool i needed to talk about something good i mean we all need something uh uplifting uh right now um whether it's something that actually means something, uh, like what you're talking about, Adam, or me making a completely nonsensical, I mean, the gift, the, the, the meme makes sense, uh, if you watched the show, but if you didn't watch the show, it's utter nonsense. Uh, I made a, a meme based on, uh, Neo Yokio's giant bar of Toblerone, uh, that I found very amusing right before I went to bed at like 3.45 last night. Um, I didn't understand the context of it, but I did enjoy it. It's it's an absurdist TV show, um, and thus the image of uh, someone refusing to give, or taking back a gift of a gigantic Toblerone and then standing alone in the rain with it, uh, it hits home. Uh, it made perfect sense to me at the time. Um, but again, yeah. when uh, life conspires to give you a reason to just stay up on a weeknight to 345, then things have gone wrong. I'm glad I took a shot of NyQuil and then just shut my computer and went to bed at like eleven o'clock. So is that your is that your uh, good good in the world right now? Is shot of NyQuil? Ah, <laughs> uh, sleep aids are important. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe I'll just turn it around a little bit and say that my daughter is the good in the world, even though she gave me this cold that I had to take the NyQuil for. Yeah, that's still better than mine. But I blame all of the dirty, dirty children at her daycare and not her perfect and clean I like self. that you guys have, like, a good cause and an actual human child, and I have uh, silly memory. <laughs> I mean, I did stay up 
writing until well after midnight last night, writing 1500 words, trying to process my emotions on, <coughs> on what happened in, in Cuba Trinidad yesterday. I can't even yet bring myself to, to say the words, which I'm going to have to very, very soon on this podcast, but, uh, not, not yet. Um, Give me a few more seconds to to get there. I'm out of time, aren't I? Yep. Yeah. Well, we've got to at least do the other thing first. Uh, that's fair. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast of sadness and despair and random uplifting things like wonderful children and life-saving innovation. Uh, and Toblerone. And, and Toblerone. <laughs> Let us not forget the giant Toblerone. Um, today though, it's, it's, it's mostly sadness. I'm Adam <laughs> Taylor. They're Ben Bromley and Jason Anderson. We're all from blackandredunited.com where we discuss things that are sad almost exclusively. Most of it's yeah. related to soccer, but all of it is sad and despair worthy and other words that mean sad. Tonight we are talking about the saddest of those things the united states men's national team lost two to one to trinidad and tobago the last place team in the final round of Concacaf qualifying and will not be at the world cup next summer in russia yeah this is this is bad and we are going to talk about it and process our thoughts in a sad way because that is maybe maybe also an angry one. Yeah, I, I'm sure anger will come into it. Um, I think maybe I'm, I'm I've I've progressed past anger, but I will I will revert for you, our listeners. Uh, in my my processing, I will go back to anger. I will actually happily go back to anger. Anger is much more active <sighs> than than sadness. Anyway, um, we're also going to at least touch on DC United's upcoming visit to. The Rose City, they'll play the Portland Timbers Sunday night, and we're going to give you a little bit of preview of that, but most of tonight's going to be trying to work through this disaster in in Trinidad. Um, before we do that, though, um, because this is a well-adjusted and healthy podcast, Ben, what are you drinking? So last night, I did not drink anything, even though my preference would have been to get blackout drunk, especially starting around like the... 70th minute. Um, but I was on a lot of cold medicine, so I refrained. But tonight I'm having a large glass of, uh, whiskey and vermouth with ice, aka a Manhattan. And it at least numbs some of the pain and the sadness. I, like you, I, I didn't drink anything last night. I was already so numb. The thought didn't occur to me to to drink and uh-huh. it might be your i i typically try not to drink or at least drink um to any kind of excess when i'm in a dark place um because right. I, I tend to find that's that leads to bad places even worse places and i i don't like to do that um that's my choice i'm not not saying anything for anyone else so last night I didn't drink. Tonight I am drinking a shrub. Um, I, it's uh, a rum shrub, of all things. Um, 
last night made me reevaluate some things. Rum wasn't actually one of them. It's just I had tried this particular uh, shrub mix with other liquors and didn't find it uh, super captivating. So I figured it's a it's a lemon mint shrub <laughs> and uh, club soda mix from Element, which I think is here in the district. Nope, it's in Arlington. It's a Virginia shrub, Ben. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, it didn't work with really any other mix or any other bases. So I, I went with cotton and reeds, white rum, and it, it it's better than those other ones. So uh, rum worked tonight. So for I, I don't know if that's uplifting or happy, but it's, it's the way things are. Jason, what are you drinking? Uh, I, I guess a week ago, um, was wandering through a, a liquor store that has a nice selection of, um, random import bottles. And I saw, uh, what looked to be what I thought was an Oktoberfest. It has a lot of German writing on it. Um, it has the, uh, Bavarian flag on it. Um, it says Bavarian beer. It has what looks to be a man dressed for Oktoberfest. I assumed I was buying an Oktoberfest when I impulse bought this thing. Uh, it turns out it's a uh, Bavarian-style Pilsner uh, called... Huh. Um, I'm actually not 100% sure its actual name because the, the the lettering is organized in a way that doesn't make sense to me. Um, but I believe it is a Fatigauer beer uh, from Schloss Brewery. Um, and it's okay. Um, it's, it's an adequate Pilsner. Um, it is Stella level, I guess is the best way to put it. So it's not necessarily living up to what I was hoping for in that it is not the type of beer I thought it would be when I purchased it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world and, uh, I'm coming off of a cold. You can probably hear it still in my voice. So I'm definitely sure you can hear it in my sexy, sexy voice. A low alcohol beer is is all I can really ramp myself up to right now because I've been using cold medicine. Uh, I had a single Guinness during the game last night, and that was as as rowdy as I got. Ben, I know I'm already in a dark place. I assume some of our listeners are too. Please don't do that anymore. No more. Why not? They, they, they don't want to hear the sexy dulcet tones that I can put out. I know. I certainly don't. And you're saying the words put out in that voice have just, um, yeah, I'm done with two kids now. Mm-hmm. No more kids. Hello, my friend. I don't think I'm capable anymore. <laughs> I will be here for you throughout the podcast. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to have grandkids now, too. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> I do what I can. Um, and you do it very well. Unlike the U.S. men's <laughs> national team. And we're going to do this, people. Um, we are going to process. We are going to discuss. We are going to analyze. We are probably going to cry. I have a sweater handy in case I need it. I'm hoping not to need the sweater. But if we're going to have a good cry, you got to have a sweater handy. And I have one handy. Um like I said at the top, the U.S. men's national team not going to be at the World Cup next summer after losing 2-1 to one in, in Cuba, Trinidad um, to Trinidad and Tobago, the worst team in, in the hexagonal. Um, the United States finishing fifth out of six teams, um, missing out not only on an automatic qualifying spot, in the World Cup, but also the playoff against uh, Australia, the 
fourth place, fifth place team from Asia. Yeah, technically. Uh, and they're qualifying. Um, so, yeah. Um, the USA had to really mess up in Trinidad and also have some results go elsewhere go very, very uh, wrong. And it did. There were there were three games among the, the six teams, which makes sense. Everyone's with me so far, I think. Yes. Uh, the math holds. Three up. teams... Three teams with nothing to play for. Mexico and Costa Rica had already qualified. Trinidad and Tobago had already secured last place no matter what happened uh, and had no chance of, of advancing to the World Cup. Those three teams are playing three teams fighting for one automatic spot, one playoff spot. Um, the USA went to Trinidad and Tobago, obviously didn't get the job done. Uh, Panama hosted Costa Rica who had second place locked up and beat them. Um, and Honduras hosted Mexico, who uh, finished first in in the group uh, and beat them uh, with a come, behind, come from behind victory, no less. Uh, you, can, you can point to Panama having a phantom goal awarded. You can point to lots of things throughout this, but the... It, it all comes back to the USA had all they had to do was get a draw in Trinidad and they couldn't do it. They couldn't get nope. a, a single point from, from this game. And I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I'm at a loss. Can we twist the knife a little more? Because this wasn't just Trinidad and Tobago. This was eliminated preparing for the future, throwing a bunch of kids out there. Uh, no Kevin Molino, he was suspended. Nope. Uh, Jovan Jones only came in as a sub. This was that Trinidad and Tobago. This was this was them at like B plus strength. Right. If they were uh, if, if they were a team in the American soccer pyramid, this would have been a good NASL team. And, and to go further, they didn't even play very well. It's not like we caught them on the, at their very best somehow. They didn't even play very well. Uh, no. That was one of the worst soccer games I've seen in a long yeah. time uh, at at all levels. It there was no was good. There was no good that came from it. Um, it no one appeared to get hurt. Yeah. All right. That's <laughs> that's about uh, the I best think that thing really you can is all I can. Yeah. Well, he died. Uh, I mean, unless like. Some of the traveling American fans, like if someone slipped and did an ankle in the stands, uh, at which point then someone got hurt. I, uh, I know our, our, our buddy Donald Wine is on his way back from from Trinidad, so he I, I don't know whether he injured an ankle. I hope not. Donald, if so, we'll get the, the pray for Donald hashtag trending ASAP. But uh, yeah, this game was it was so bad and as soon as the lineup came out an hour before the game and it was unchanged from Panama, I felt my, my stomach sink a little bit, which is weird, was weird at the time anyway, a little bit because, uh, that lineup had decimated Panama in Orlando. But as Jason, you wrote and, and was covered extensively in other outlets, um, hosting Panama 
in Orlando and traveling to a tiny stadium in the middle of nowhere in Trinidad uh, on a on a bumpy pitch are very different things. And your formation and your tactics and your personnel have to reflect different situations sometimes. And never mind, that's even putting aside the fact that these 11 guys played four days ago a a thousand miles away there's just so much that went into the decision to not change that lineup it's i i don't understand what bruce arena was doing i don't understand what he was trying to do i don't understand what he was thinking his process what his desired outcome was other than hey we boss panama let's boss trinidad which is criminally negligent in in my mind. Yeah, uh, it's it's it was bizarre. I mean, any preview for this game, just about every one of them made at least some note of the fact that Arena has been perfectly comfortable rotating players uh, throughout qualifying. Um, even guys that didn't play ninety minutes in the previous qualifier, even. Um, in any instance, he's been rotating all the time. Um, it has, it up until this point had seemed apparent that he was planning, because qualifiers come in twos, you play two during the window. Um, it always seemed like he was making a plan based on having two games to handle. Um, the call ups, the roster for this thing, um, I mentioned in my piece that, uh, oh. back three was, was preferable. And that this might be why Michael Roscoe got called in. Uh, he ended up not being in uniform for either game. But, uh, you know, a back three makes more sense with Michael Roscoe. That's the, a position he's actually cut out for. Um, we had all these indications that this was a plan. This this roster was called in with a two-game plan in mind. It wasn't just called in to do one game. Um, but there and was then Bruce that, Arena opened his mouth. And Yeah, I mean, there was, this the is quote the thing. out there was... Yeah, we, we're good. only thinking about Panama. Um, we're not. I think thinking he about went further. He said, "He said I haven't given two seconds of thought to Trinidad right. and Tobago before the Panama game, which was exactly not how he approached the the earlier windows, especially the, the successful ones." I mean, if you take him at his word, and I, at the time I took that as just coach speak, because Arena does right. a lot of coach speak where he gives you a one-liner brush off, but then it doesn't reflect what's actually going on behind the scenes where they're actually working very hard and focusing on tactical things. And he'll tell you, oh, the tactics don't matter, blah, blah, blah. And then because he wants you to not bother him about it, basically, he wants to tamp down that angle of, of controversy and keep, um, you know, it, it sort of helps him manage his team. It protects his team a little bit. Uh, but in this case, it kind of sounds like maybe he was just telling us straight up how things were going. Because yeah. there's no way you play the same lineup on the road. One, on the road, because it was a wildly reckless attack-minded formation. But also, those guys worked extremely hard against Panama to get that 4 nothing. That was no... I mean, it's in Orlando at this time of year. It was hot. It was humid. Um, they put a lot into that game. You can't expect those guys to bounce back and give you 100%. Four days later, you have to. If you have the luxury to rotate, if you have more than fourteen players in your squad, you need to change some guys out. And sending the same lineup out there, I mean, that's where it starts. I mean, the players bear their significant part of the blame, but it starts with sending eleven tired players out. 
Yeah, usually when you're talking about a fatigue team, you see that as the game wears on. And and to the Americans' credit, I'm going to be generous here, Trinidad seemed to tire more than they did as the game went on. Game states probably had a lot to do with that. The fact that the U.S. is better technically had a lot to do with that. But fatigue, to me, doesn't explain the nonchalance of almost every American player during the first half of this game. There was no urgency. There was no tempo. There was no trying to get that early goal and and put Trinidad away the way we saw against Panama. It it just wasn't there. I I and when I write about this and I, I wrote about this last night, it's on blackandredunited.com, my trying to process this in writing. I I use the phrase give a shit about US efforts and you know a, a now former US identity involved a lot of that. And by that I don't just mean effort and running and trying. I mean you know I I mean taking charge. I mean pushing the tempo of the game as well, not just hustling on defense and whatever cliches you want to use there's there's things you can do that are smart that show that you care and are invested in the game in the u.s just the players didn't show that and it it really was frustrating because this is the game that they had to get a result to guarantee that they would advance and they they just didn't and that actually brings me to a related point so i'm just going to keep ranting um and that's the uh, apparently the players were being fed the scores and situations from the other two games that were happening, which is insane to me. If I were Sunil Gulati or Bruce Arena, I would have had a radio blackout on the bench because yes, you know what you have to do. You have to get a draw. You have to get a point. A win is even better because a win means that a, a f- if you're leading a fluke goal doesn't put you into danger of elimination. I, I don't know. You know you want to get out there and and get a result. So why the hell are players why why would they care if there's another result? It's not so, to me to me it's not about the players. Um you need to know those scores on the bench because as a coach um if you don't know those scores for example um because because of the way the nature of those games, the way that it w- we're talking about Mexico and Costa Rica being much better teams than Honduras and Panama, um, you don't necessarily make the subs that they made when they made them. Um, and we're talking maybe about a matter of a few minutes here and there, but on the bench, that's essential. I mean, the process of sending sure. a sub in. I, I wouldn't let that information thing. get to the players, though. I would. I would. Yeah, but I mean, bar the players a, from asking or. Or well, trying to receive yeah, that information. Like, how do you practically put that in place? Like, if the coaches are all of a sudden uh, furiously trying to do something, if they immediately, if they have a little huddle and one and one of them is telling the other coaches something, and all of a sudden they're all panicking, you might as well just tell them. Um, sure, but they in the first half with with the team down, uh, the the commentators were in the the sideline reporter for BN was saying that they that that. Brad Guzan was was like basically hanging on every moment of the other games and and reporting that to the bench and 
that just seems i mean it's not why we're not going to the world cup but it, it it's just it's such the wrong mentality to me that it, you you take care of your business and the the coaches they need to know that if if the team is trailing sure at that point especially in the second half the coaches got to do what they got to do but in the first half just go out there and play and try to win the game or get the result that you need don't i it really bothered me when i heard that because that's when i knew for sure the player's mentality was not right for this game and it it confirmed what my eyes were telling me yeah i mean the thing about that story that bothers me is more that brad guzan is a player who might have come into the game like if you're gonna have a player in charge of listening to the results uh on a radio or an earpiece or something give that give that job to nick Ramondo. um give that job to one of the guys that was included in the squad and wasn't in uniform um don't give it to someone who may well be subbing in because they've got other things to do at that time. They need to be paying attention to the game on the field in front of them because you might come in. Um, so that part would bother me, but I, I feel like the, the, it's maybe like a small sign of something, but the broader, um, alarm bells about the mentality of the group, uh, are much more of a, a worry to me than, uh, than this specific thing. I mean, I don't mean to like completely brush it off, but um, I think to a certain extent, you do need that information on a bench and there's not really a practical way to keep it hidden. Speaking of Nick Romano and Brad Guzan, can I talk about uh, Bruce's roster construction? <laughs> yes. This is, this is a round table at this point. My no, outline yeah. for this show is for this segment, especially is essentially non-existent. So just, what, wherever we go, we go. Yeah. So as as the game went on, and as it became more and more dire, I just became more and more infuriated by Bruce Arena's roster selection for this these entire two games, because basically, like we were worried about a couple of weeks ago, he was 2006 Bruce and not 2002 Bruce. He chose to take all of the. Uh, older veterans who he thought could get him there and they weren't able to do it. And both he and uh, the previous coach weren't trying to build for the future. They just stuck with what they had. So nobody was trying to, no one saw that Tim Howard hasn't been a national team caliber goalkeeper for a club or for country for at least a year. Everyone just like tried to ignore it and didn't like ever since he hurt himself taking a goal kick, he hasn't been the same, and nobody, just, nobody was. Everyone was like, "That's yeah, fine. It's either him or Brandon Hussain. It doesn't matter." <laughs> and we'll take him and and Brad Hussain and Nick Romano, and it's fine. Don't worry about it. Even though, I mean, there's Bill Hamid who was kind of hurt this time around, but he could have been integrated earlier. There's um, Ethan Horvath. There's uh, um, Bingham in San Jose. Got there's a, a few weeks ago, so he's there's on the a way number. Out, but. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's a number. Luis Robles, even. I mean, there are a number. There are plenty of American goalkeepers who, if you had given them a year as the number two, integrating in as the number one occasionally, they could have had plenty of opportunities to take over in this situation when we know Tim Howard isn't good enough anymore. Right. And there are are like 10 guys in MLS, 10 American guys in MLS that could have started this game and made at least, at least saved the second goal. 
Right. It's it's not like it's not like Tim Howard is like, oh, he's good for right now, and we'll worry about the goalkeeper of the future later. He's not good enough right now. I'm sorry, Tim. You've been a great goalkeeper for the USA, but you're not good enough right now. And another one that I uh, thought about, and like. Chris Wondolowski is undoubtedly a wonderful human being. And I don't care about his 2014 miss anymore. That's that's water under the bridge. I don't care. But the reason I heard from all the pundits about why he was on this roster is because, oh, he's such good locker room presence and he's a great guy and blah, blah, blah. And I so wish that somebody like Dom Dwyer was on the bench instead of him to at least provide perhaps some energy and some just like running around off the bench. Juan Agadello was on the roster but out of uniform. For both yeah. of these games, that's yeah. that. Like the fact that Chris Wondolowski was in uniform <coughs> bothered me. Uh, Tim Howard being there bothered me. I think all three of us are pretty much on the same page on Fabian Johnson being left out. Actually, being uh, okay because I'm not he sure he, he. I'm not. I'm not sure how no? I feel about that one. A, at least bef- I'm not sure how I feel about it either. Like I'd be fine with him not starting, but. Yeah, I could I could have used him I could have used him off the bench that's here. True. That's that's but, a good point. I mean, the, the other side of it is, and, would he have even gotten in? Would he have been yeah. rotated into the lineup because of Arena's choice to just play the same eleven guys? Well, and that's the other thing. It's like we'll get we'll eventually get to who should not be ever called in again. But just Bruce's reliance on Omar Gonzalez when all evidence has shown that he. He can't do it at this level. It's just baffling to me. And like, even if you started him in the Panama game and he did okay, and that's fine, but why not rotate Jeff Cameron in, even if he's only had one game at Stoke? You, you, you can't rely on him two games in a row. Jeff Cameron, another guy who plays in a back three. Um, in fact, in the center of a back three. Um, but we, we do have to note <sighs> that Cameron also has given reason for himself not to be in the lineup. Um, yeah, that's true. He, he had a bad not as bad as Omar. Not as bad as Omar. Uh, I don't that his mistake in I mean his mistake with the ball uh, was just as bad, if a little more explicable than the the weird non tackle that Gonzalez had against Costa Rica. Um, but they've right. all been the, Cameron's yeah. Cameron's whole thing is he's supposed to be good with the ball. That's that's his value add is he's good at defense, but he's great at passing. And if he's going to be terrible at passing, then there are a million other guys who you can put in. I guess the main thing for me with the center backs is that when, like, like how, how badly we miss John Brooks. Yeah. Um, I mean, but you know, even if you add John Brooks into this group, it means you have one good center back. Um, and, and Matt Beasler is second and he's Matt Beasler's doing about his best, give or take, but he's just, he's, he should be on the edge of the U.S. pool, um, and that's just his talent level. He's just not a special talent, um, and he right. and he ends up being our second best center back because everyone else. It's not because he's excelling; it's because everyone else is just a mess. And you know, Gonzalez plays well at Pachuca in a good league in Mexico. Cameron is a starter in the Premier League. Uh, Tim Ream is playing in the Championship, which is also a, a, at least MLS level, if not ahead. These are guys that are doing well enough in their domestic situations where they shouldn't come here and have it all crumble like it does, but it does. So does that come back to Bruce? I think it has to be on both. Uh, there has to be some level of adaptability. If you want to play on the national team, you have to be able to adapt to someone doing things differently and having to learn on the fly. 
Um, and yes, the you know the coaching staff does definitely need to be good at at bringing players in, and and uh, I believe uh, on ramping was the term Arena used in justifying not calling in anyone new for this last set of games. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, but it was too, it was too it was too late by then. He had over a year to on ramp new I mean, people. He did, and he, just... he, he did on ramp a few people. He Paul Ariola became much more yeah. integrated into sure. the team during the Gold Cup. He's He's kind of the one success story of the Gold Cup, yeah. As far as the uh, an individual player goes, those are are longer term things. I'm talking about like he, he's saying that from like guys that he might have been thinking about calling in August, there was no way to prepare them for now. Right. Um, <sighs> someone like Dwyer, for example, only played a few games in the Gold Cup and then got ignored in both September and October's windows. Um, that to me overrates the ramp up process. Yeah, that um, shows a lack of flexibility I, on Bruce's part. Yes. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's look at her. Too hard on that. Look uh, at her. Her Gomez from 2010. Yeah, I mean, well, we, we've American soccer is littered with players that had like two or three caps getting into a World Cup and actually making a difference in those World Cups. Even Julian yep. Green managed to make a difference. Uh, right. I mean, he didn't change any results, but he did score a goal, which the U.S. Or, did not really uh, managed to do. Al- um, Alan Gordon and Eddie Johnson from last cycle. Right. Um, there's a benefit to having a wild card. There's also a benefit to someone who's fresh and is is super excited to be there. The same thing happened with Paul Ariola in the summer, um, where he had had a few call-offs, but this was his first real long-term shot. And he was excited. The, the The excitement was tangible, and that that ramps up competition within your squad. Um, someone like Dom Dwyer, who has seemed extremely enthusiastic about the, any call-up he might get, could have easily added something here. And, and also, on top of that, uh, if there's a more concacaf American player than Dom Dwyer, uh, exactly. I don't know who it is. Um you know, a guy that's suited to this kind of game where the rest of the team is flat and low and not just low energy, but like unable to even unable to even they literally couldn't even um, you know, he's the kind of guy that can just sort of uh, spark people to life as a slap in the face just by his sheer willingness to run hard and, and you know, the run fast, try hard thing. It has its merits. Um, and when your team is completely flat, like the U.S. was in the first half. A guy like that can be the spark between you carrying on like that or you shaking into gear and having like, wow, that was a bad 10 minutes. But now we've we figured it out. And it's all because this one incident, you know, got me going. It it motivated me. It it sparked something in me that I wasn't getting before for whatever reason. Um, But that was that wasn't there either. Um, I mean, Clint Dempsey came in and the U.S. seemed to spark to life briefly, but that was kind of it. I mean. In the later stages of the game, as I, I tweeted from our site account, in the last 20 minutes, I felt like the best thing going for the United States was that Trinidad had run out of gas. It wasn't that they had figured something out. It wasn't that they had changed tactics in a way that was exploiting Trinidad. It was just that the sheer amount of time they'd had to defend had drained Trinidad of their energy. Um, and that was the U.S.'s best hope was just tired players on the other team. And it can't you can't wait for that uh, in a game where you're playing a team that's significantly worse than you, but that's where we were. And it, you know, it, it reflects so poorly on that roster selection. It's, it's, 
you know, at the time we all had our questions about it, we were like, well, this group is still good enough. And that group was still good enough. But you you might as well give yourself the best chance you have, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and that, I, I think, the group was good enough is kind of the the story of of this whole hexagonal, the whole qualifying <coughs> process. And, you know, on obviously the immediate cause, the proximate cause of the U.S., failing to reach the world cup for the first time since 1986 is this loss in Trinidad. But there was a home loss to Mexico, a home loss to Costa Rica. There's other things that contributed to this. And there, there were warning flags before the hexagonal either. Um, it, it shouldn't have come down to this one game. The U S should have secured qualification a long time ago. Uh, starting 0-2 before firing your Klinsman obviously contributed. Bruce kind of, I don't know, forgetting what he was doing, losing his keys, forgetting somebody's phone number. I don't know what he was doing um, in, in the previous window when we, we lost to Costa Rica at home. Uh, it shouldn't have come down to this, but it did. And the, in the end, the 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 collective wasn't good enough. This group of players should have been good enough, but ultimately, um, ultimately they weren't for, for a million reasons. Um, Yeah. You know, it's guys unable to to transition to the national team, the coaching staff, not able to prepare them adequately or, you know, make the correct strategic choices uh, for playing two games uh, in short order with a trip. Uh, involved. Um, it's, I guess this comes back to, and and we'll probably get into some of the broader causes of all the problems here, but, um, there's no silver bullet. Um, there's no silver bullet for this hex and there's no silver bullet for us soccer. Um, there are a bunch of different causes and you know, what's funny is that as bad as all this stuff, you know, all the stuff that the U S is responsible for and needs to, you know, I mean, we still, we're still sitting here with no one from the Federation uh, resigning. Arena is still not resigned. Uh, players haven't said... That, that better happen this week. Well, it hasn't happened it yet. It should have already happened. Like, yeah, I feel, like, yeah. I feel like it should have been a like post-game press conference. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway, it should have been. Um, even with all that, it still took... like U.S. soccer is in such a good position in CONCACAF that it still took an absolutely mind-blowing sequence of events... Uh, for this to happen. Was it one out, one out of 27 yeah, I mean, yeah. or one out of 27 po- possible permutations? Right. Um, at least? It, it required one of the, of the 27 possible sequences of results of those three games. This was the only one that could have eliminated the U S it required an yeah. own goal that hit off of a, a crossbar and hit uh, memo Ochoa in the back. It required a goal that never crossed the line uh, in Panama. Um, it required Roman Torres scoring uh, with a center forwards run uh, and volley, even though he is a center back and he's not even fast. Um, it required uh, the own goal that uh, I believe Brian Strauss put it best. He said that Omar Gonzalez couldn't uh, re- replicate that own goal if he tried a hundred times. Um, it right. required Alvin and, and which Tim Howard should have saved uh, the own yeah. goal. I'm not going to blame Howard on the the ramp up of that ball. That the angle that it took was preposterous. But the second goal, yes, Howard should have saved, but it's also probably the best shot Alvin Jones is going to hit in his entire life, um, which we saw later. Uh, we saw Jones go for another one from long range that 
wasn't as good. It was hard, but it was not nearly as dangerous. And Tim Howard and was it, fooled by that one too. He muffed it. Yeah. Um, like that was the yeah. one I, everyone will remember Tim Howard running out to confront a defender one on one and eventually slide tackling the ball out inside yeah. his own box for a corner. Um, because the defense was like, yeah. Oh, Tim Howard's got this. And Tim Howard did not got that. No, he didn't I, have can it. I tell you guys, when Jones lined up that free kick, I said out loud, like, oh, he's going to hit this because of the last one working so well. And then he, when he started to approach the ball, I was starting to laugh because it was like, of course, the guy's so overconfident now that he hit this once in a lifetime shot that now he's going to think every single 40-yard shot is a goal. And he hit it, and it started to dip, and it, it took that bounce in the box. And I'm like, yeah, you dummy, you shouldn't have just decided to go for a 40-yard shot again because they don't, they don't work very often because... 40 yards is too far away to score on a goalkeeper, even a, even a goalkeeper who's too slow anymore. And then as I was having those thoughts, Howard misjudged the ball and it hit him in the shoulder. And he was lucky it hit him in the shoulder. Um, yeah. That thing very yeah. Oh, yeah. just bounced up over his shoulder and in. Um, and at that point, it's like, okay, if, if Howard is now too slow, but also doesn't ha- – I mean – when you're at his age, you should at least have the judgment and positioning levels uh, to cover for yourself um, when the athleticism starts to go. If you guys think of, remember Pat Onstad um, playing until he was 40, yeah. and it, he was never a fast goalkeeper. Um, and, you know, Howard, we know Howard's lost the athleticism, but he's also lost the judgment, um, the ability to figure out how to deal without it. So, um should we should we take this opportunity to talk about uh, other players who are dunzo with the USMNT? Well, I mean, why not? We got uh, yeah, let's do it. Like I said, Ben, this is we, we're forty minutes into this. Three, segment. four, yeah, Actually, yeah. Before we do, we're not even before close. we do this because we're gonna we're gonna take a while. Let's take a a quick break to make sure our our sponsor get gets a word in, or we get a word in on behalf of our sponsor, and then we'll come back and and talk about other players that, that we don't want to see with the U.S. national team, men's national team anymore. Uh, stick around. It's Filibuster, the Black and Red United and Sad, Sad Podcast. Hey, Ben, um, you wouldn't say this is a hostile work environment, would you? You can tell uh, me. Depends. I mean, well, I should ask you. I mean, is are goats hostile? Uh, I think goats are, are hostile. I think that they are secretly trying to take over the world. But but if this were a hostile work environment, or if I were trying to steal your wages, or or do something else oh, nefarious, in a, I'm really not. Uh, but in a workplace environment, you know who to call, right? Because you live in the District of Columbia or Northern Virginia. I, I do. It's the Ehrlich Law Office. It is the Ehrlich Law Office. Uh, they they offer discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions in Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia, which means I can totally create a hostile work environment for Jason. Except, no, he, they, they wouldn't want me to say that. That would be bad. I do not want to create a hostile work environment for anyone. But Jason couldn't call them nonetheless because he lives in Maryland. Sorry, Jason. I'll fight my way through this. All right. <laughs> Uh, they handle workplace discrimination, wage theft, uh, non-compete clauses, and uh, non-solicitation litigation. They handle civil rights and government takings and disability and education law. They handle a lot of things. And if you are interested in a free consultation, head to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster. Before we left, the 
plan was to talk about players besides Tim Howard, who are probably uh, no longer really... definitely. (laughs) Definitely by podcast law. Pod law. By by declaration, by fiat here on Filibuster, are, are done at the international level for the U.S. men's national team. Ben... This is uh, your court, and we are merely courtiers, so have at it. I mean, I'll go with the two uh, super obvious ones first, just to get them out of the way. Obviously, Tim Howard, we love you. You were amazing in 2010. We will never forget it, but you're... You're, you should have been done a year ago, and you're super done now. I mean, I'd be fine with a Tim Howard and a couple other of these players uh, farewell game, maybe in November, maybe a, maybe a little later on, but no later than three or four months from now. But other than that, um, and only for one game, it, 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 I'm sorry, Tim, it's it, it, it's done. And then the other one, which also pains me, but... He was shown to be super done last window is Demarcus Beasley. Um, you've got to find somebody else to play uh, left back. It, Beasley already retired from the national team once. <laughs> right. Like he stepped and away he was and brought, brought back, back yes. because there wasn't a, an adequate left back pool. And Klinsman, it, it was Klinsman, I think, that brought I mean, him back even. Yes, it's, but I mean, I'd rather I'd rather have a 19-year-old there. Like, uh, what, Marco Farf Is Marco Farfan from Portland a left back? He is. Yeah, I'd rather have him than Demarcus Beasley. No, Kellen Acosta or played left Kel- back in this Kel- game. Uh, and it wasn't Delgado good. Uh, I don't want to remember that. Marky Delgado would be great. Uh, not great, but uh, acceptable. Uh, Justin Morrow, Taylor Kemp. Justin Morrow is the one we should uh, be talking about. Yeah. But, I mean, like, I really wanted DMB to get to a fifth World Cup, but especially now that we're not going to a World Cup, uh, definitely, I'm sorry, DMB, uh, your, your time has come. I think well, he'd be the first one to tell you. Yeah. I mean, Be- Beasley and I are the same age. We're both 35. And at a at best, the next World Cup that a 35-year-old could play in as an American, they will be 40 when that happens. Um, yeah. So he's a left back and he would be 40. Uh, I mean, mathematically, like the first thing that comes to mind when I'm looking at this roster is players' ages first and foremost. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, Jeff Cameron... Cameron is 32. Um, I think, you know, you keep him around for a while, but he can't be looked at as uh, a necessary starter because you've got to start building for... Yeah, you've got to start putting in... You've got to start putting in Matt Miazga, Cameron Carter-Vickers. And I'm not saying, like, throw in both Miazga and Carter-Vickers over and over again or or any of of the guys in that class... Um, but, you know, the transition needs to start. So someone like Cameron is in uh, at least a questionable position. Uh, Graham Zussi, I think, has actually taken more flack than he deserves because he's played really well for Kansas City. But he's yeah. one, and he's a conversion project right back. We've got to find a better solution than that. Um, Tim Ream is 30. He's not going to be around for the next one, and he wasn't very good in this one. I think you can cut him no. loose. Uh, Matt Beasler, like I said, is... Just he's fine as like the last center back in your roster, but for the time being, I guess we kind of have to. Uh, oh, oh, oh uh, all the other goalkeepers too, besides Tim Howard, yeah, like I mean, Guzan and Romando. Yeah, you know, Guzan hasn't really uh, shown himself to be better than several MLS options. 
Um, right, he, right, just right now, right now, he's basically just a, a, he's a, guy, a fine MLS keeper. Right. Um, Omar Gonzalez at 29, you have to think that he's in significant danger, even though he's playing at a high-level club and has um, won a ton of things in his career. Uh, there's still obvious, we have obvious national team reasons to put him in, in the question mark category. Um, Alejandro um, yeah, is if he couldn't even start this game, this game was like tailor made for Alejandro Bedoya to start yeah, in central well, midfield. I will say, as much as I would like to blame things on Alejandro Bedoya because I don't think he's a good human being. Um, no, but he should have yeah, played this I, game. But I'm not going to blame him for not starting this game. That one's on Bruce. Um, no, no, I don't blame him. I blame Bruce for not starting him. This would have yeah. been the perfect game for Bedoya to start. But, and that's, uh, that's Bruce. At, at his age, uh, it's hard to justify hanging on to him when the U.S. player pool is so oh, yeah, sure. promising. Of course. I mean, Weston McKinney, Weston McKinney uh, by himself should push Bedoya out. Um, but we've also got Kellen Costa can play that role. Um I mean, it's also making me very sad that as we go through this, I like I knew this team was old, but I didn't realize that this team was this old. Bruce, Bruce went heavy on guys that are past their thirty prime. plus. I mean, Dax McCarty is thirty. People, I think, maybe think of him as a little younger, but he's thirty. Um, he is nine days younger than, or nine. I'm sorry, nine days older than Bedoya. Um, yeah. So his use to the squad is probably done, even though. He never really got his fair shot. Uh, unfortunately for him, that you know the failures of others mean that he's screwed. Uh, Benny Failhaber um, is thirty-two, so you've got to look at him. Uh, yep. You know when you you look at the forwards and you get to Clint Dempsey, he's thirty-four already. Um, he's the one who need, he's another one besides Tim Howard who needs a send off. I mean, at least yeah, he definitely deserves a send off at some point as if, if he's still interested in playing full time, um, then I would be interested in him as a wild card, you know, 10 minute substitute kind of role for the U.S. Um, where he provides something that a lot of these guys don't have, not just creatively, but also that Clint Dempsey uh, get the job done no matter what kind of mentality. Um that's that's useful, you know. As long as we're not leaning on him, if we or if we're still like, wow, Clint might be starting this game, then something has gone horribly wrong. Um, and then, of course, you know, Wando probably shouldn't have been called in, uh, with all due respect to him, but he's thirty four. Um, there's yeah. no way that this team can carry on. Uh, it, they're not going to get better if they're not giving some younger attacking players a chance to prove themselves. Um, I mean. Don Dwyer isn't that young, but I mean, give him some, give him some games. Juan Agudelo is only 24 at this point. Um, I'm sure we'll see Jordan Morris. He's, it's not like he was kicked out of the squad forever by not getting called in for this last set of qualifiers. Um, but like, I want to say CJ Sapong, but I'm looking at his age right now. I forgot that he's 28. So his window is pretty limited. Um, Aaron Johansson's still out there. He's only 26. Um, but yeah, it's, well, and a lot, a lot of this has to go back with uh, what's been talked about a lot in uh, U.S. soccer circles recently. And Brian Strauss wrote a good article about this, but about the missing generations of uh, I think it, U.S. soccer I think players who Shiretta. went from. No, you're right. It was Brian Shiretta, uh about how basically the players who should be 23 through 27 right now, that generation doesn't exist, and to. In, to 
also illustrate that. I have a little quiz, mostly for Adam, because he hasn't been looking at Wikipedia like Jason and I have been during this. Right. But Adam, oh, you're just going to put me on blast. Okay, let's do it. Let's yeah, do it. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You're, you're a proxy for, here so, for this. our listeners. I have to be here for yes. something. So, I'm choosing this to be here for. Yes. So out of this 23-man roster, how many play? Guess just just a number. How many players were 26 or younger? 26 or younger. Okay. Yes. Uh, let me let me let me think on it. Sure. So Pulisic, Costa. Uh, the answer is depressing. Would? Yep. Maybe? Three? Let's yes. go three. I know it's a sad... Not part. quite that depressing, but it's it's five. Who'd I miss? Who'd I miss? It's DeAndre Yedlin, Paul Ariola. Of course, I, I fail. I resign, <laughs> officially. Yeah, those are the only two you missed. Nice. Yeah, otherwise, I, it's, it's uh, Pulisic and, uh, and uh, Acosta and Wood. That's the whole, that's the sum total of players 26 and younger on this national team that's, for this game. That's rough. Yeah. Um, that's really rough. And, and, you know, if you're, if you go to, in fact, for our listeners, if you go to the U.S. national team's page on Wikipedia, they also have a list of all the recent call-ups with club and, and their age. If you scroll through the recent call up section, which is all the other players that got have been capped like this year, basically, um, going back to January, it even lists guys like Stephen Fry and Brian Rowe. Um, the number of times you see age 30 and up is unpleasantly high, even for that group where it's even more experimental, you would think. Um, but, you know, the, and, and the sad thing is the only excuse, the only one of these players in that extended list that you can excuse for not getting called in more recently is Sebastian Legette, who got injured at, at the start of qualifying in this basically the entire year. Um, but everyone else yeah. not getting called in um, for their age, it's <coughs> a question as to why the, they didn't get called in when there are um, guys on this roster who are older and are not better if at best not better um age, the age thing matters um in in, the, in this sort yeah. of thing um and it's a really really bad sign for the program that there's a bunch of dudes over 30 and then there's a gap and then there's a bunch of dudes who are younger who aren't getting their looks in and and this next one my next comment I'm going to it addressed to anyone who who thinks it's a good thing wait for can, US I, can I throw one more thing about that agent just a okay. quick one do it there are four guys in this squad who are in their prime years four in, in the squad that fell to trinidad uh that were in uniform there were four guys in their prime uh their prime years that's it and just to define prime years you mean uh, generally speaking, you want to look at, depending on what position you're talking about, you want to look between 26 and 29 or 30 for center backs. Um, but yeah, four. And I also feel like, uh, as an aside, to, as an aside to your aside, I, I feel really bad 
for Josie Altidore because he missed the entire last World Cup with his injury in the first game. And now he's not going to be able to go to this World Cup. So he's basically missing both of his World Cups in his prime. So I will now address this next comment to to those who who, who have been saying that it even before this loss, uh, saying it would be, and now it is a good thing that the U.S. is missing the World Cup because they're going to have to do no. soul-searching and reforms or whatever. Most immediately, um, anyone who says that missing the World Cup forces us to change over the the roster, no, it doesn't. This roster was going to have to change after this World Cup, no matter what. We get we get to start the process a little bit earlier, maybe a calendar year earlier, not even a calendar year earlier, nine months earlier um, than, than we would have. But just the construction of this roster was so tilted towards guys who will not be around for uh, Qatar or wherever that World Cup is held that 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 father time was going to take care of that for us. Um, there are some reforms that, that need to happen and are, are worth talking about. And at least some of them were already well underway. Pay to play is on its way out at major academies. DC United is the only MLS Academy that still charges players. And they are, from what I understand, they, they give lots of scholarships based on need to make sure that, that players get in when, I, I have it. I have it on the record that they do yeah. do that. So, pay to play at least at major MLS academies is mostly gone. Um, it's still exception. a um, <laughs> to our to our purposes yeah. to our specific yeah. audience. Uh, it it is still very much a thing outside of MLS circles. Uh, I think. Uh, the Richmond Kickers are an exception to to that because they not, don't charge. Not not not, not anymore. anymore. They 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 couldn't find it. They they were able to do it for a season or two, but they weren't able to financially continue. That's really unfortunate, and that goes to another yes. reform that U.S. Soccer needs to make, which is getting in line with FIFA on um on on training solidarity payments payment. and. Uh, solidarity payments and solidarity. Yes, that that is giant. Like they've they've been objecting for a while like they, now. They have with, an argument with murk with murky, but uh, a, an argument that from their point of view you can understand. But now it's just like no. This you is something do I want to get. Like I I I'm trained as an attorney. I don't know the answer to this because I I haven't researched it. I want to know if their argument holds any water because they argue that it's an antitrust. Um, right violation to to charge those payments it's a restriction of trade essentially to require those payments be passed on um that is kind of ripe with them facing an antitrust lawsuit from the other side yeah my my legal advice is to find someone apparently uh i've been told by actual uh people who are experts in antitrust field that it's extremely arcane and obscure even for lawyers uh, as a group. oh yeah it um, antitrust is super specific is that yeah, we should not uh, try and even take guesses about antitrust stuff because we don't know what the hell we're talking about. Uh, Adam knows more than us, but he know it sounds like you know enough to know that you don't know what you're talking about. Basically, it's so murky they could probably mean? just they could probably just do it, and nobody's going to sue them to not do it. Well, well except you know, now the, that they, their defendants in an antitrust suit, maybe someone will. Yeah, uh, you know the the point about solidarity payments brings me to a broader thing that. 
that I've been thinking, and I know a lot of other um, folks have brought up in, in the aftermath of this, and even before, um, it's very it's a very common thread uh, when you talk to any anyone that does youth coaching uh, with any sort of seriousness, and it's that U.S. soccer is set up more as a business than it is set up to be producing the best soccer it possibly can. Um, and in this case, the solidarity payments thing, uh, as a business, I can see why you would end up with MLS clubs finding the business reason to not pay those solidarity payments. Because for business reasons, it is sensible to not pay a cost if you don't absolutely have to. But as a nonprofit, that should be supporting everything. Uh, right. Although and, now, and MLS clubs don't. Now that MLS is, you know, MLS is producing talent in academies that is, in some cases, being poached by overseas right. out operations. You know, Paul Ariola, the LA Galaxy wouldn't have had to essentially extort half a million dollars in Monopoly money from DC United if they received training compensation from. Tijuana and solidarity solidarity payment on uh, his transfer to DC United from Tijuana that that money would have gotten there and it would have been much more transparent and much less holding a team over a barrel over an asset you never had it it makes so much yeah. more sense and it's so much more straightforward than the system of protections that MLS currently has that maybe. MLS would be on board if the Federation moved in that direction. I'm not sure, but at least well, there's a chance. To, I mean, to, to, to stick with what I was, what I was saying, um, the, the whole idea, I mean, USSF can say solidarity payments are good, <coughs> but ultimately uh, this is something that MLS clubs also have to look into. They have to admit that this business decision isn't the best for soccer in the country and they have to make a decision that is better for something that isn't financial. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> and we've seen it at a lot of different angles, um, that isn't often the case because we spent such a long time as a, as a country trying to get clubs that were on financial good footing. And a lot of that included <coughs> not paying any cost that you don't have to and being very tight with everything. But I think our clubs are at the point where they can loosen up a little bit and say, you know what, um, soccer as a whole is going to benefit. Um, our relationship with these youth clubs is going to benefit tremendously um, because any well, youth club that has ha had a player leave them for an MLS academy. Um, will like Chris Hogan. Right. And they'll probably tell you, like, we're very excited that our, our player is going on to a professional academy and they have that path to become professionals. That's awesome for us. We're excited for our guy, but you know, losing that player is a big deal for us. Like it, it, it hurts us as a club and we need something um, to deal with that. And, you know, compensation doesn't replace a player, but it might make that youth club even better. And maybe, you know, five years from now, some kid that's just signing up at seven or eight, uh, is all of a sudden getting a, you know, US U14 call up. And maybe a couple years after that, they are in Chris Durkin's shoes, captaining the U17s in a, in a U17 World Cup. Um, yeah. The money changes that. The money makes those clubs that are developing good players more able to do that. And to well, not and, pay and them is, is, frankly, to me, it's ridiculous to not pay them. Well, and carrying on the specific example, if DC United sells Chris Durkin, 
and the Richmond Kickers get a solidarity payment and training compensation, then maybe they can use that money and go back to a free academy for a year and start building a free academy again and develop the next level of player who then may go up to DC United, who may be signed by DC United, and then start the cycle all over again. But and and you know that things like that. There's also like paid partnership agreement where a bigger club might pay um, a straight up like a, a a fee every year, and and it's just you know that's the cost of linking up. Um, maybe that's something that comes up, but there's got to be some way where the top is doing a little more for the bottom because we don't end up with a player pool that cratered for several years of several. Several birth years just cratered out. We don't end up with that happening unless our youth system is struggling with something. And clearly it is because anyone in the youth programs will is screaming basically uh, that they're struggling with things like the fact that good players can't play because they have to some they have to get money from somewhere and they end up having to bill the parents of that player. And now that player can't play or has to be subsidized and that takes money from something else. And eventually you end up with players falling through the cracks. I think the next thing we're going to talk about is a question from uh, a good friend of ours associated with Black and Red United. But before we do that, I'm going to to put out a PSA that I've that I've said before, and that is if you care about the future of American soccer and you want to see the U.S. a over a generation improve and compete, actually really compete for a World Cup, the the two biggest things you can do uh, are, less importantly, teach your kid to play fullback. And more importantly, go out and coach. Get a coaching license. Talk to people about soccer and and try to learn how to coach. Because <coughs> youth coaching is the next frontier that has to be conquered. Because coaching at the, the youngest levels is still very much give the ball to the most athletic kid and let, let him or her do their thing. And that's not how we advance. You you have to teach kids and get everyone playing because there are late bloomers in this and get you, everyone playing as much as possible under good coaches. Um, I was talking to my, one of my friends, uh, his son is, has gotten old enough where he's just started to play at the first level of youth, youth soccer and he said, I'll go coach. And this is someone that I played indoor with. I went to college with. We played on intramural teams together. Um, he's not the best player in the world. Um, he didn't have the best soccer background growing up, but he played. He played for his high school team. Um, and he's now coaching this team. And he said, you know, some of the things that occurred to him very quickly were some basic stuff like it's kids. So you can't have them standing around because they'll get bored immediately. And then you might as well end the training session immediately. Well, once you have a group of five-year-olds who get bored collectively, you're screwed. Um, so he's, you know, giving them things to do all the time. Uh, but he's telling me literally today about how one of the coaches that he coached against uh, before the game, they were having a chat and she was like, you know, one thing I can't get my head around is the difference between a goal kick and a corner kick. And, I'm not going to, I don't want to laugh at her because she's just, she's someone that doesn't know soccer at all and is basically babysitting. Um, she's volunteering to, right. She's yeah. volunteering and she's spending time with her kids and she's, you know, making sure kids are active and all those things are very important, but she's not a soccer person at all. And it occurred to me that 
my friend is probably at worst the second best coach in that league at worst. And he's not coming from a super soccer educated background, but he's, he's automatically just by dint of knowing the general rules uh, ahead of like half the coaches in his league. Um, the fact that he's actually played the game pushes him further up the chart. Um, and we need, you know, we need the situation where that league, you know, those five and six year olds need, uh, people who know the game a little more, uh, helping them out. Um, they can't have the situation yeah, if you where it's just paid babysitting until you get to be 10. Yeah, even if you, you don't want to, you don't have kids in a, an organized league, there's DC scores who always needs coaches. Um, and you, you take one or two afternoons a week and, and go coach underprivileged kids, essentially, at, at DC public schools. You can, there, there are a bunch of coaching courses that the, the U.S. Soccer Federation puts on, uh, all around the D.C. area and you can find them online and you can start going through the official coaching ladder. It, and it, it starts off with youth coaching. You got your, uh, F license earlier this year, right? Or was it last year? I've not gotten it yet, but I, I, no, I haven't gotten it yet, but I'm going to because it's just an online course and I, just want to say I'm an F certified, a USSF certified F level coach. Yeah, ben was always. But I haven't done it yet. Quick, uh, one quick aside, and I, I can't now. I can't remember who brought this up on the topic of coaching licenses. Um, I think maybe it was Brian Strauss, but I, I could be wrong. Someone brought it up. Someone smart brought it up. Um, and it was the difference in what the USSF's A license is, which is for, it's four grand to get an A license. Um, if you're not doing this for a living and having an organization foot the bill for you, that's tough to come up with for just about everybody. Uh, in Germany, which let's be honest, the German A license and the equivalent is probably better than the USSF's A license. It's like six hundred. Oh yeah. Uh, you can afford that most likely. Um, if you've got time to take the courses anyway, you've probably got six hundred dollars or can get there if you save up. Um. The Spanish Federation, another federation that definitely is putting, giving you a better course at that level than the USSF, is about $800 or the equivalent in euros. So um, that's another issue that has to be tackled is the fact that this business model is not good for soccer. It's good for business. Yeah. It's like it's the coaching version yeah. of, of paid play. It really is. That's exactly right. But at the lower levels, thankfully, it's not $4,000. It it does cost a couple hundred, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, absurd in its own way to, but you, if you played at a high level, if you played in college, you can wave past, um, some of these requirements, some of these license um, levels, but it, it still costs right. money. And I believe there was a story of, um, I believe it's, uh, Lori Kolopny who was with the U.S. Uh, women's national team and retired. Um, she only found out after she was already taking coaching courses that her professional experience qualified her for a certain level. No one ever bothered telling her that. Um, and I don't know how institutionally, if you're U.S. soccer, this isn't being handed out to players, you know, when you get into the national team pool, like, hey, by the way, this is one of the benefits is that you qualified for this further education. Um, I know DC United just posted a photo recently of it was at least, you know, eight to ten players in a classroom getting, I can't remember what level it was, but some kind of coaching certification. Well, it was, um, yeah, it was actually a few photos. They also showed the practical, like, 
Because a lot of these courses involve actually getting out and coaching, and they, right. they got out and they coached but, DC United Academy but the key players, which the makes perfect club, sense. It was actually DC United doing something really good right. for their players and also the for club soccer. had to tell those players that, it looks like. we don't. I mean, I don't know who told them directly, but it looks like the club put this program on, um, organized it because it was done at the stadium. Um, at least it looked like a classroom in, you know. Um, yeah. But the point is that, you know, if you're a women's national team player and you're like, I would like to get into coaching and no one has told you that you qualify for a certain license, like what a colossal failure that is for the whole institution. Um, and that's yeah. emblematic of some of the problems uh, at uh, Soccer House is that, you know, you can't even get talented people who know the sport extremely well. And, and I mean, if you're if you're a, a teenager and, and your coach walks in and it's a national team player that you've seen play for the national team, uh, that's, you can't buy that. Um, and not informing those players of that is just, it's ridiculous. So to reiterate the PSA, go coach. If you're listening to this podcast, you know enough about soccer that you can coach. You can you can learn the other stuff. You can learn how to deal with kids um, because that's also a part of it. But you love the game. At least consider going out and and signing up to coach, whether you get a license or not. Just be an assistant coach for someone. Um, you you might help someone along a path that will help soccer in this country more broadly. I promised we would get to uh, our friend Philip Quinn's question that he he asked us in in our slack channel uh basically saying u.s soccer federation has uh reportedly allegedly whatever adverb you want to use a 100 million dollar surplus they they have what is that nine figures in the bank right now that they're sitting on like they're apple i can't count nine figures nine figures Nine feet. What did I say? No, I said you said nine feet, and then took it back. Oh, okay. All right. As long as I I I didn't royally screw up, I'm no, no. I'm, I, I'm happy. I I did, and then retracted. <laughs> so they're they're sitting on a lot of money, an obscene amount of money in the bank. They have this surplus. Philip Phil would like to know if we had our druthers, where would that money be spent? Because that money should be spent. There's no reason for a nonprofit to who has a mission of advancing uh, a sport and promoting the sport. There's no reason for them to be sitting on that amount of money. They don't need it to stay liquid. It looks like a scam. Yeah. It, it at that point it looks like a scam. it does. Um, and I, I I'm not saying U.S. soccer is a scam. I'm saying that they are giving themselves the appearance of being a scam by having a vulgar amount of money. For yeah, so, for the, so their, uh, their nine, IRS 990 ending <coughs> March of 2016, they had total assets $121 million, total liabilities $23 million for net assets of $98 million. Like that's, that's great for them. They need to be spending that money. Like, it's great that they're taking that yes. money in, that they are properly capitalizing their resources and getting money from ESPN and Nike and Fox and, and friendlies. Yeah. Like they through SUM. 
Yeah, they well, they are doing a good job of. Is, yeah, yeah. Their their revenue side is fantastically well run, possibly too well run, but they're not doing enough to spend that money. You have to spend that money. You, ha- I have ideas. I want to hear your ideas. Phil has his ideas. How should they spend that I'll, money? Ben, you go first. Okay, I'll start. Yeah, I'll start with my ideas. Um, my, I have two main ideas. One is to pay the women's national team and the women's and especially and also the um, the players on the fringes of the women's national team. Give them enough money so they don't have to be in this weird uh, situation where the contracted players have to get X amount of caps and the non-contracted players, the floaters, can only get a certain amount of caps. Make it so that people can make enough money that the head coach of the U.S. women's national team can call in whoever they want for any game whenever they want. Uh, after that, I think you just plow as much of it as you can into uh, youth development uh, on both sides and uh, help make it as low cost or as free for as many uh, players as possible. Uh, probably also some more scouts because uh, the uh, U.S. program has uh, – such a dearth of scouts, of full-time scouts, uh, so you probably have to bump that up as well, but plow it into youth development and help continue this uh, burgeoning uh, class of good youth na- uh, good youth players, and hopefully that can continue and get even better and even better and have and produce more and more players. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I, I almost think they should take some of it and start an endowment, take $50 million, start an endowment that, that pushes out at least $5 million a year to support academies, whether it's federation run academies in cities, whether it's affiliated academies that meet certain standards, uh, just to basically help take, uh, development academy clubs because they're already essentially they're all they're already agreeing to be bound by federation standards and strictures make them all pay to play like use this money to make them pay to play and make it sustainable so that if we do miss a world cup which we did and and some of the money from sponsorships and from competitive advancement dry up you still have that. That's what an endowment make, make them free. To, make them free to play, not pay. Exactly. To play. Sorry. Yeah, okay. like make them so they're not pay to play, because okay. the these clubs are getting the money to to take care of whatever tuition or whatever money they need to be solvent. <coughs> make the women's national team better paid. Uh, push money down towards towards lower and younger levels. Uh, as well, uh, it, yeah. There's so many things you could do with a hundred million dollars. <laughs> it's it's just crazy. Yeah. Um, I, the as I told I told you guys this earlier today when Phil put the question to us. Um, the fact that this mo- this pool of money even exists, I think, is almost. It, it's like the bigger. It, it interests me more that it that exists than what to do with it, because it shouldn't exist. They shouldn't have this money 
uh, sitting around. Like, the people that are in charge of this should have already done all of these. Both of your ideas are very good and should have been executed years ago. Um, and the fact that this money's just there, not doing anything, is maddening to me. Um, yeah. So, uh, it makes me almost uh, as angry uh, as... It maybe it makes me more angry than missing the World Cup. I'm not sure at this point. It's, it's. I'm trying to quickly read this this 990. They, like they took in 120 million dollars uh, last fiscal year, but they also spent uh, 110 million dollars. So they only quote unquote made 16 million additional dollars last year. But they yeah they still have 100. Well, it's million good that they're spending the money. I don't mind that they have a, a net yeah, surplus. But, but they, need, they need to be doing... Yeah, they need to be spending it better. That, that changes nothing. Yeah, ending up with a surplus is, is fine, but I don't want to hear about a million-dollar surplus. That's ridiculous. Right. Uh, so, you know, I would like to see both of the things you guys proposed um, implemented. Yes. Um, I'd also like to see U.S. soccer become a leader, and, well, I, I guess they can't become a leader because Norway always already beat them to the punch. Um, but... Pay the women's national team equivalently. Yes. Um, yep, definitely. You know, be, make a statement. Um, U.S. soccer is terrified of making statements. Um, they've ended up to the right of the NFL on kneeling mm-hmm. for flag protests. Um, they're that, and it's not. I don't think it's U.S. soccer's actual position that they need to be to the right. They're just so terrified of rocking the boat for anyone anywhere uh, that they won't make any statement at all, even one that's transparently just um so yeah um take care of that uh it's obvious um this is a thing that's it's right in front of their faces and they're like oh well, you know it's all hemming and hawing it's not a good reason um because they've never had a good reason because ultimately when you come down to it it, it can't be defended um so that's one thing that they could do i mean that's not going to spend the whole thing certainly um you know another thing I'd, I'd like to see more of, um, I know in Italy, and I'm sure in other countries, um, Italy is famous for having a coaching training center. It's called Coversiano, or the city it's in is called Coversiano. I don't know the name of the facility itself. Um, there, there's one in France too, right? At France, it's a youth training and coaching um, at Clarefine. Okay. Um, yes. Italy is, is just, it's basically coaching master's school. Um, it's, it's a master's program to become an excellent soccer coach. Um, Alessandro Nesta, when he retired, what he did in between taking the Miami FC job was he went to Coversiano, even though he had been a world-class soccer IQ at center back for many years and had played in Syria and played for Italy and won a world cup and all that. He still went to Coversiano to learn all of that stuff. And now you know, he took an NASL level team with a bunch of MLS washouts pretty far in the open cup. Um, is generally considered the best coach in the NASL by far. Um, but he's just one example from Italy. They've got their league is full of guys like that. We don't have anyone that's gone through something like that coaching in MLS. Um, we don't have any American coach that's gone through something like that. Even the best American, you know, guys like David uh, David Wagner coaching in Germany or. He was in Germany. Now he's in um with Huddersfield Town. Um, yes, he didn't go through that kind of thing. He basically played abroad forever and then you know earned his chops coaching youth teams and and did it the old fashioned way, so to speak, um, climbing the ranks. But a coaching academy where we're turning our best potential coaches into 
the best coaches they can actually be rather than making them learn on the job, um, as is often the case in MLS. We have a lot of guys who just sort of stepped off the field and became coaches right away. Um, sending those guys to a finishing school, so to speak, uh, I think would do volumes. Um, I mean, we can't learn any – a lot of people have cited Iceland's progress in recent years. Um, we can't really adapt too much of what they did because their situation is entirely different from us. Um, basically, every, every male between 20 and 30 in Iceland is not either on the national team or is a uh, UEFA A-licensed coach at this point. Um, but we can make it so that good coaches, coaches that have gotten to that A-level um, – and have shown real, uh, real merit, give them a facility and a, a place and a curriculum and everything like that, where we can turn those good coaches into great coaches and not have one or two, but have a bunch. Um, because that, you know, that's kind of thing that eventually you get flooded with a bunch of really good coaches and you end up with better soccer players at all levels as a result. This is, a you know, the kind of thing that could, uh, lift the whole player pool uh, for for both the men's team and the women's team, which, um, you know, the the women's team, I, I think Charlie Boehm said last night in a reply to somebody that uh, the U.S. women are a lot like uh, England on the men's side circa the 40s and 50s, where they were such early adopters that they got out in front of everybody. Uh, but if we know the history of England soccer, we know that that doesn't last. Uh, your advantage doesn't stay permanent if you just get out in front of everybody because you were first. Um, and we're already seeing evidence of the world uh, catching up on that side. That has to, you know, that's something we don't have to let happen. Um, but it's going to require better coaches across the country to make it happen. So um, I don't think something like that would be too expensive. And I think it's something that they could set up at the National Training Center or whatever um, and make that a permanent institution. Yeah, I do know that the I th- this falls under... What I'm about to say falls under the category of reforms that U.S. soccer has kind of taken a step toward, but not necessarily uh, fully implemented or fully realized. Mm. At, at this point, I know that they they created a USSF Pro license that goes beyond the A license, yeah. and you you basically have to be a pro coach already to take the course, right. which is a little bit weird a little absurd even that the only way to get the license is to already be there. And they, you know, they had the first class that had a whole bunch of MLS coaches. And then the, the second class, I think, uh, I don't know. They, they didn't publicize the second class as much. I don't know if they've graduated yet, but they, there, there will be women's coaches in, in that one, but it's not a, a center that's fully dedicated to right. producing great coaches throughout the the spectrum throughout like for all levels it's only focused on mls and nwsl coaches which is good as far as it goes but it's it's not enough and and just to bring it back around to to something i said earlier this is one of those things that's necessary but it's not necessarily helped it's not at all helped by missing the world cup there, there might have been somebody just like there's kids who who see the U.S. in the World Cup. They see uh, he'll be 20 next year, 20 year old Christian Pulisic scoring on Germany in the World Cup. And they say, badass, that's where I want to go. That's what I want to do. And they start playing soccer at more at a more focused kind of level. 
there are people who watch the World Cup, I'm sure, and they know soccer, but they they get the bug even more, and they say, I want to make soccer a bigger part of my life. I'm already an adult. I'm not going to play it, but I want to be involved with it. I'm going to write about it. I'm going to podcast. I'm going to coach. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to start a soccer bar. There's so many ways to advance soccer in this country, and none of them are helped by missing the World Cup. Yes, U.S. Soccer Federation is going to have to make some changes. They haven't yet. It's been 24 hours since this loss, and, and there have been no changes yet, which is frankly inexcusable yeah. and, and makes me think that the small C conservatism of the Federation is going to continue apace. And we're not going to see the changes. And anyone who thought it was a good thing is going to be severely let down by the lack of progress we see from the Federation as a result of this failure. It's like we've said, there's no silver bullet. And that's one of those, that's one of the most popular silver bullet solutions out there is this whole burn it down thing. Um, But it doesn't work that way. It's not going to be fixed like that. Nope. Well, that's a properly depressing way to end the segment. I think we've been we've been on, I think, close to an hour and a half now um, between the two segments on just this. So yeah. we should take a quick break and come back and very quickly preview DC United's visit to the Portland Timbers, which, if nothing else, will be a nice palate cleanser to send you off with. Please stick around. Please stick around. This is Filibuster. Welcome back. It's Filibuster. MLS still exists. The United States isn't going to the World Cup, but Major League Soccer, still a thing, no matter what some people want you to believe. DC United are heading west this weekend to the land of Fred Armisen and Kerry Brownstein to face the Portland Timbers side, currently sitting third in the Western Conference. They're five points clear of the formerly red line. Go back a few weeks if you want to hear my rant about the fact that the line is no longer red and why that's stupid. Uh, right now, the the Timbers uh, are on an interesting run of form. They've alternated wins and losses for the last month or so, but at home, they haven't lost since July 19th. Kickoff is set for 7.30 Sunday night at Providence Park. Uh, look for it on News Channel 8 or your local affiliate if you are in the hinterlands like Ben Bromley is. Um, Jason, what's going on with the Timbers right now? What are the stories around Uh, them? I mean, one major thing uh, that goes back to this qualifying cycle is that uh, they might be missing. I mean, Darlington Nagby played both games, despite probably being a bad idea. Um, David or David Guzman played, I believe in both games for Costa Rica. Um, during their uh, qualifying, uh, both their win and then their uh, defeat uh, on the last day. Um, so both of those guys are going to come in with, at at, wor- at best, heavy legs. Um, Guzman, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see who they would replace him with because they've got a bunch of guys who are sort of in between. You know, Amobi Okugo, they said, was going to only play center back for them, and then he ends up being mostly, most of his appearances end up being in the midfield. Um, Ben Zemanski could play there. 
Uh, Lawrence Olam could play there. He's played defensive midfield in the past. Um, Guzman, I think, is a little, you know, folks in Portland, I think, maybe overrate him a little bit. Um, Folks around the league maybe overrate him a a little bit, but um, he's definitely more mobile and better on the ball than any of those players, um, any of those possible replacement options. So um, I'm not really sure what they're going to do um, because it really has been all of those guys have gotten their looks and no one has really locked it down. Um, Nagby on the left, I think... They're going to probably choose between uh, either Darren Maddox playing as a a, a winger, um, or they can bring in uh, Dyron Espria, but then they have to move Sebastian Blanco over to the left uh, to make room, because Espria largely plays as a right winger. But in both cases, you've got a speedy, wide player who's going to stay wide, whereas Nagby, as we all know, likes to come inside and, and play narrow. Normally, uh, the Tim... Well, what's funny about Nagby too is even though he's been playing wide a lot for the national team and Caleb Porter spent the entire preseason talking about how he was going to be wide left this whole year and that's that was his position he spent the last couple of weeks playing central midfield yeah but I mean mostly he's been on the left um but it's a very narrow when you think of their midfield five Blanco and yeah. Magby both play narrow they both get close to Diego Valeri um so that if he can't play, which is a variable, um, it changes. Uh, it changes because Maddox is not going to stay narrow. Uh, Espria is not going to stay narrow. They're not going to play possession passes. They're very direct. Both of those guys are very direct. Um, they want to get in behind. They want to run at defenders. Um, so it, it, it changes things. It makes it hard to game plan because you've got two very different uh, options there. You either got a guy that wants to come in and combine uh, or you've got someone who absolutely wants to stay wide and get in behind on the on the the touchline. Um, sorting that out is going to be, or I guess, preparing for both outcomes. I guess uh, because realistically, we might not know until um, right, you know, an hour before kickoff. Um, as far as their form goes, it's been decent, but not anything particularly special. Um, there's a lot of they've lost one, they've win one, they draw. Um, there's is not I mean they've got a I think their longest winning streak since that they won their first three games and then since then they've had a couple two game winning streaks which are as you're probably aware the bare minimum to become a winning streak um so the, the Timbers haven't not really been impressive um they've gotten 47 points in the west so they're tending not to lose that often but um they're not a particularly special group they're you know, they've got nine wins out of, uh, what is that, 15 games at home, which is good, but it's not like playing the top teams in the East who have all been dominant at home. Um, no one in the East in the playoffs other than the Red Bulls has fewer than uh, 10 wins at home. Uh, most of them have 11 or 12. Um, so I think overall Portland is the kind of team that would maybe – their 47 points is a little bit of a fall. It's, it's a little bit of a misnomer because they've gotten an easy schedule out of the – the conference imbalance because things switched so dramatically this year um, to where most of the good teams are in the East. Um, so Portland has maybe padded that, uh, that point total a little bit, but at the same time um, they're scoring a ton of goals. Diego Valeri is uh, justifiably getting talked of. I, I, currently, if you ask me to vote at this minute, I would actually vote for Valeri over David Villa um, because I think if you took Diego Valeri off the Portland Timbers, 
you would have a DC United level team this season. If you put in an, you know, MLS replacement level guy in that spot, um, which is of course, you know, that's not how it would actually work out in reality, but, um, Valeri has been nothing short of brilliant. Um, he's, I, I believe, is he in first in the golden boot standings, uh, at this point? He's in the race, uh, at I least. Think he is. He scored he a brace behind in the, the last game. Uh, so Nikolic has 21. Via and Valeri. Okay. Yeah. Nikolic started scoring again after his right. insane Villa and start and then 20. cold spell. Um, it's been interesting to watch the Timbers. The dynamic with them has changed because um, in the past, the goal scoring job fell to Fernando Adi, um, who was basically a target man and a poacher put together. Um, and Valeri was the creative hub. He was the genius in that midfield. This year... Adi has been much more target man and much less poacher, so he's getting into fewer goal-scoring positions, but those ch- those chances are still coming up, and Valeri is the one getting into those spots, um, which is how he's gotten to 20 goals. He has five or six headed goals, um, which for a playmaker is ridiculous. Like, that just doesn't happen for a uh, a, a traditional number 10. Um, but he's got that... that mobility in that soccer IQ to get into those spots and score headed goals. He actually is pretty good in the air too. He's not necessarily the best at, uh, getting off the ground, but, um, once he gets his head on the ball, he's really good at picking out a corner. Um, if DC United is going to get anything out of this game, they're going to need Russell Knaus, um, and the center backs to really come up big because Valeri's movement, um, his ability to get, get free, uh, is, you know, there's there's a reason why he's got 20 goals and he's in the MVP race. And it's not just his skill with the ball, it's his brain. Um, and they're going to have to, to take care of that because if you can take care of Diego Valeri, you've got a really good chance of beating the Timbers, who, like I said, they really aren't a special team outside of Valeri um, this year in 2017. Um, you know, guys like, like Blanco, for example, has taken some of the creative load off of Valeri, which allows him to get into those spots. Um but at the same time, every single team that plays the Portland Timbers says, okay, if we shut down Valeri, we've probably got a uh, shot at this thing. And then, you know, Valeri scores a goal and probably gets an assist, and then you've lost 2-1. to one, and You're like, oh, how do we lose this game? Um, the defense, you know, if you look at the defense, it's not very good, quite frankly. Um, uh, it's not the best group of defenders, certainly on the flanks. Alvis Powell is a very good right back, but it's because of his attacking uh, tendencies. He's still vulnerable to be caught out when he bombs forward um on the left they haven't really been able to get anyone to lock down that position and play uh at an even decent level at left back all year long um so that's you know if Paul Areola um is able to put himself back together mentally and physically um he could be in for a big game if not Lloyd Sam is probably gonna have to come in and play really well and take advantage of that weakness um we might even see, I, I'm speculating, but um, maybe Olsen rotates uh, Zoltan Stieber out to the right instead just to see if um, if Stieber is, is able to take advantage of uh, that weakness there at left back. Um, their center backs have been sort of okay. I mean, they've given up 49 goals this year, so uh, you can't say that this is a lockdown defensive unit by any means. Um, so, you know, as much as the standings and the distance being traveled uh, and, you know, United has, has not had very many good uh, positive results against Portland um, since the Timbers came into the league. Um, but they shouldn't be intimidated by this. This really isn't that special of a team. 
Um, <clears throat> if they don't get undone by Diego Valeri, which is always a possibility, even at the ba- I mean, even if they play a great game uh, at in central defense, and even if Russell Canales is spectacular, Valeri still might get himself on the score sheet. Um, but if they can take care of business in that section of the field, they might actually be able to get something out of this game, uh, which seems bizarre to say, but Portland's a weird, they're a weird team uh, out in the West. They, a lot of these other teams are solid all around, but you wonder what's going to happen when they need someone big to step up and reduce. Portland has the opposite problem where they've got their star man who's going to carry them through trouble. It's just the rest of the 10 players are the question mark. And that setup has them somehow in third place in, in the West and only four points out of first. Yeah. Only West four is points out of first. But also, you know, five points, you know, they could still miss the playoffs. If yeah, they, I said if earlier they, they were twice. five points above the <laughs> so, the red line. Right. Somehow, yeah, the the middle of the West is such a jumble because the the first team out of the playoffs in the West is RSL on 42 points, and which is three points better than the Montreal Impact, who are seventh in the, the East. But, but yes. every position above the line is has more points in, in the East. It's uh, conferences are weird, man. Yeah. Van- Vancouver, Vancouver is at the top of the West and they would be the fifth place team in the East right now. Um, and yet RSO, if you put them in the East would be the seventh place team in the East. So that's the tight, that's how tight the, the West is. Whereas the East has clearly differentiated itself with um, five teams who are very good, the Red Bulls, and then five teams who are very bad. Um, uh, yeah, the 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 West really is like the Eastern conferences of past years. Where um, I mean, you, if you guys remember last year when uh, Orlando came to town and they were still, despite being a train wreck, were still completely in the playoff race at that time, um, and that was classic Eastern Conference. Um, this year, that's the West, where a team like Minnesota, as bad as they've been, is one. Po- they've only they're they've they're mathematically out of the playoffs, but it's by one point. They haven't been eliminated for weeks like you would think. Um, so yeah, the, the the West is a, a jumble where it's really tough. I mean, I don't I, – actually, Houston's playing as we're recording mm-hmm. this, if I'm not mistaken. Or no, they they just finished, so they won. They got a absolutely crucial win for them. Um, but yeah, like FC Dallas, as good as – as talented as they are, they've cratered and they might miss the playoffs. They're only one point ahead, so um, – Portland's record is maybe the benefit of just being in a conference full of very inconsistent, uh, unreliable teams. Which kind of fits them as well. And Jason, I want to yeah, I want to uh, congratulate and thank you because this ahead. is probably one of the more succinct, uh, <laughs> still informative and thorough breakdowns of an upcoming opponent that, that, we've, that, that you've, you and I have managed. So good work, buddy. We didn't want to drag it out any you know, more than we had to. I, yeah. Although maybe we should have spent more time on this. And Adam, Adam, you're dragging it out. Damn right <laughs> I am. Thank you all for for listening to filibuster this week. Find us at blackandredunited.com. Find us also on Twitter at filibusterdcu for the podcast at black and red you for the website. If you feel like supporting us financially, patreon.com slash filibuster is where you can do that. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. 
uh, download, subscribe, give us ratings, reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, whatever podcatcher you personally prefer. Uh, mostly, though, please tell a friend about the show. That's the best way to to get the word out. And, you know, we're a DC United podcast. We're not going to zoom up the iTunes ratings. We appreciate ratings and reviews there, but we're not going to suddenly become a featured podcast there. We're pretty niche. So just tell another DC United fan about us, and, and we will be eternally grateful. I, I'm speaking for myself, and Ben and Jason there, I assume, are with me. For those two guys... We'll talk to you real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Spend the money in the surplus, you bums. Yeah. Bums. Bums. Shaking my fist in the sky. <laughs> <laughs>